Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So the theme that I want to explore through the whole weekend, this weekend, um, I've written up here, which is just the way that when we look closely at any experience, um, there's nothing about experience that actually refers back to a sense of me, to a sense of I. And you know, I think when we start hearing stories of enlightenment or the Buddha's description of his own uh, process of awakening, there are certain aspects of his teaching and his description or other people's description of this process that I think we can really relate to uh, without a meditation practice. I think we can relate uh, to impermanence very viscerally. Um, You don't need much contemplative practice to start to notice how everything that we feel and think and experience, perceive and so on is changing, is in motion. And the apparatus that we use to notice impermanence is also in motion, is also impermanent. And that everything we conceive of in relationship to our insight of impermanence is also impermanent, is also changing. And... um, This also relates to suffering, and that when we try and create permanence in the face of impermanence, um, we create suffering for ourselves, we create dukkha for ourselves. I don't know if there's anything that's so unique um, in those teachings um, that makes them particularly Buddhist. But I think where the Buddha's teachings really come in and offer something radically uh, new is in the teachings of emptiness and not self. And as most of you uh, are describing, sometimes you get a kind of inkling of what that means, and then sometimes it, it escapes. It escapes us. And it's really a compelling intellectual exercise. But I think as Leanne was mentioning very clearly, um, that's not really enough. Just to simply understand the teachings on emptiness or not (coughs) self intellectually. So what the Buddha is focusing on um, in his teachings on not-self has to do with the fact that everything um, that we notice or that we experience lacks an inherent substantiality. 
And there are different ways to understand this. You can understand it in terms of interdependence or dependent origination, where we can see that there is no such thing as a thing because of the way things are conditioned by other things which are impermanent. It's hard to find thingness. Another way we can understand emptiness is the way that emptiness itself is a story, is itself just a strategy rather than a thing. We want to make emptiness a thing. Oh, if I realize emptiness, that there is an I that realizes a thing called emptiness. As opposed to seeing how emptiness, kind of like our concepts of divinity, are strategies that we can employ um, to wake up to the nature of things. And we often confuse the strategy and the words for the thing itself. And we're, we'll explore this all weekend long. So when we hear teachings on impermanence or teachings, for example, on ahimsa, nonviolence, not causing harm, I think they resonate somewhere in our heart that's easy to find, you know, where it's obvious that if we're going to have a community Um, that is healthy, if we're going to have relationships that are peaceful and tender, then they have to be rooted in non-harming. But again, this, this, when we come back to this teaching of not self or of emptiness, um, there's something so subtle there, and maybe it's so subtle because it's so basic to our nature, that it's hard to just grasp uh, with the mind. And so I also want to talk about that a little bit, because that's it's interesting, the way that the, the whole notion of emptiness escapes uh, a kind of mental grasp. And... Um, and that's quite interesting. And so we'll, we'll look at that also in relationship to um, to that teaching. Any questions before I keep going? Feel free as I'm speaking to interrupt at any time. Uh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, emptiness always confuses me that way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like you're saying, like non-self, so that's, that's the emptiness of mm-hmm. emptiness is sort of that mm-hmm. lack. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to start with a little passage. Maybe this is a good time to read it from Dogen. When I was in China in a Zen monastery... One time I was reading the sayings of an ancient master. A monk from Sichuan asked me, What's the use of that? What's the use of reading? I said, When I go home, I want to be able to guide people. The monk asked, What's the use of that? (laughs) I said, For benefiting all sentient beings. The monk said, in the end, what's the use of that? Later, I thought about this conversation and realized that studying the sayings and stories of ancient masters and expounding them for deluded people is of no use in awakening ourselves and guiding others. If you sit and clarify the great matter and understand the essence. The power of this is boundless in awakening others, even without reading one word. I think that is why the monk said, in the end, what's the use of that? So afterward, I stopped reading the recorded sayings of old masters and just sat still. 
and just sat still. I love this passage. I used to have this passage pinned to my wall. (laughs) Beside my library. (laughs) Which some of you have seen. So, our notion of self is deeply rooted. It's deeply rooted. And so we start to feel like the self is something that's deeply rooted. But we don't see how our notion of self is a deeply rooted notion rather than a deeply rooted thing. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions that I asked you last time we were working together was whether you can notice the way that you inhabit the stories that you tell about yourself, about others, and so on. And this was was your homework. Mm -hmm. Um, We've been talking a lot about how one of the features or characteristics of mindfulness practice is, first of all, the intention to be present and, and to know and to see and to hear and to breathe and to watch and so on. But another characteristic or another feature of mindfulness is doing so without commentary, without judgment, with acceptance. And so for most of us, we're starting to notice not only that there's a lot of commentary, but we can start to see how much we're identified with the commentary. And one of the things that's come up out of that in a sort of more interdisciplinary perspective is that a lot of our training in becoming clinicians is to help people identify the kind of stories that they inhabit. But what we're doing in the practice of mindfulness is not only noticing that we're inhabiting a story, but we're also starting to notice the the empty nature of the story itself. And that the I that we think is inhabiting the story is also a story that's inhabited by nobody except the mechanism that continues to make stories, which also is not a thing that's also a conditioned aspect of perception. And so sometimes we use words like the ego and we really think we know what that means. Or we say the unconscious and we have an idea that that's a a place somewhere in one corner of the brain or one corner of your pelvis. And so when we use even the prefix the, or when we use a capital letter, we have a a sense that these ideas are actually how things are. Someone was telling me a story about working with a young person, and and she's a teacher, and she said to this person, um, or she said to the class, "What, what color is an apple? And everybody said, red. And one kid said, white. You know, the apple's white. She said, oh, don't be silly. Look at the apple, it's red, it's red. And um, he said, no, no, it's white, it's white. And uh, we know this, right? You cut open an apple, and uh, it's kind of white and yellow. Fresh apple's white. And we have this idea that the apple, an apple is red. And so what mindfulness is doing, it's like creating a frame around things. And within that frame, we're looking closely and without a lot of commentary so that we can be affected by that which we're looking at. But what happens most of the time is we're busy looking at the frame. You know, we're not looking at what's inside the frame. And because we're framing everything all the time with memory, 
it prevents a kind of fresh experience of the apple. And of course, we all know that apples are not always red, even on the exterior. So it becomes hard to say what color is an apple. It's too vague. But most of the time, because we're so focused on the frame, what this does psychologically is it offers us a sense of security so that if we can remain in what we know already, then we can uh, feel comfortable and secure, but at this superficial level. So uh, an Austrian philosopher I like a tremendous amount, Wittgenstein, has this beautiful line I came across this week where he says, the sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast in grammar. The sense of a separate self, so the sense we each have of a separate self is only a shadow cast in grammar. In other words, without memory and without the habit energies and language, when we're truly paying attention, we can see how the substantiality we give to things is just a shadow cast in certain habits of perception. I'll read it again. This is a a fantastic insight. The sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast in grammar. And to begin to understand that the self is this shadow that is just a mere appearance is troubling and wonderful at the same time. I mean, if there wasn't some kind of relief in that insight, I don't think we'd keep uh, trying to um, um, live this insight or inquire. Or There's some kind of wonderful relief that happens when we have even a momentary, instantaneous, spontaneous sense that the self, that everything we know we are is not who we are. That, that the, the body is not you. That your feelings are not you. That all these sensations that we experience are, are not actually who we are. And that everything we think we know about who we are is not really who we are. (laughs) And how troubling that is. And also how wonderful that is. So wonderful. And so uh, disorienting. You know, at the practical level, I think about these things in kind of my daily life. When I go to work for me, is really a place where I see a lot of things happening. But mm. the one thing that I don't, I haven't experienced this very deeply, uh-huh. but at a very superficial level, what I've experienced is that, so you're in the workplace and you're all kind of putting a strategy together and you have your own point of view. Uh-huh. And then you just say, well, you know what? That's not really me. Hmm? Uh-huh. And I found it truly liberating. Yeah. Just to be able to let that go and then yeah. go, yeah, okay, well, let, let's. Yeah. So that's very superficial, but yeah. just at a kind of conceptual level, one can yeah. actually apply some mm-hmm. of those concepts yeah. in powerful ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, that this week I was out with two friends on the same day, and in the morning I was with a friend who opened a yoga studio recently, and um, he was so frustrated that a competing yoga studio... <laughs> um, was copying his class schedule 
the the way he described his workshops and um, the way he described the yoga that they taught and was so frustrated that this other studio was just copying everything that he was doing and was so invested in his view that they were being competitive <laughs> and was really worked up about it. And in the afternoon, I spent a, friend, a time with a friend who is a, um, a professor whose career or her reputation is so um, connected with the originality of her ideas and is frustrated by a couple of students who are now publishing papers. These are people who she's uh, been mentoring. And now they're publishing papers and they're kind of shining. And she ha has had a couple of babies in the past few years and so she hasn't been writing. And now they're writing and mm -hmm. producing these papers and, and she's just calling them plagiarists. <laughs> you know? They're just taking all my ideas. <laughs> And just this way that we think thoughts even belong to us. Mm. You know, I mentioned uh, a little while ago, I don't, I don't know if you recall, about a, a documentary I was watching on D.T. Suzuki. And someone asked him in the end of his life, you know, you, you've had so much death around you and so much loss and um, so how has this practice affected you? Do you still feel sad? And he said, um, I cry and I have tears but my tears have no roots. My tears have no roots. And that's not what happens for most of us, right? the tear drops into the mind and it has it drops actually into a substantial root system you know, the roots of memory and association and storytelling and so on there's a, a wonderful passage from Ryokan which I thought I wrote down Ah, there it is. Ryokan, does anybody know Ryokan? Is oh, so he's a, he was a great Japanese uh, poet and, and Zen practitioner. And um, he was very, very poor. And um, he, he never really owned anything. And eventually he made himself a hut uh, on the side of a hill. Um, and had a pot and didn't own anything. He slept on the ground and um, and wrote a lot about um, how wonderful his life of poverty was. And um, one of his most famous poems happens uh, when he comes home and a thief broke in to his hut and stole uh, a kitchen utensil and um, uh, a couple other things. The details are unknown, what exactly the thief stole. But you can imagine not much. Or maybe for him, it was a lot, right? Because he didn't have much. could go either way. And um, he comes home and he sees that the latch is broken on his door and some things are have been stolen. And he sits down and he writes a poem. That's two lines. And here's what he says. The moon at the window. The thief left it behind. <laughs> the moon at the window. The thief left it behind. So if you had a little thought experiment and you imagined coming home today at the end of our day 
and your front door was open, would you even notice the moon? (laughs) So another way of interpreting what we've been exploring so far is that there is nothing that belongs to I, me, and mine. Nothing. And what we're going to explore in terms of our clinical work and in terms of our own practice is that um, there's a point where we can start to make a shift between exploring my habits and my um, particular idiosyncrasies and so on and start to see just the nature of habit the sensations in my body and sensations in the body. My pain and pain. My childhood and history. And what happens when we start to explore the relationship between perception, mindfulness, and grammar. And there's a significant even though maybe subtle um, window there that we can start to pry open a little bit. One monk said, um, no self, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) So in Buddhist psychology, which is what we call the Abhidharma, there is a template for watching how knowing operates. And as we've talked about, the mind, which in Abhidharma is considered a sense organ. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what have we been doing? <laughs> um, its function is knowing. Right? Knowing. And... Uh, two sessions ago we talked a lot about not knowing and it's interesting as you start to practice I think we were exploring listening without knowing and as you start to practice this you really start to see how the mind functions and the mind's need in its um, functioning to to contract around things and to know about them to give them name and form and so on and to also see, like the story of the apple, how limiting that can be. How much gets shut down through starting with an answer. Starting our investigation knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the way that the mind as a sense organ interacts with the other sense organs which is what makes it seem like it's queen, is that the mind knows what's coming in through the other sense doors. So you hear something and the mind knows. You see something and the mind knows about it. A tear drops and you know what it is, where it's from, why it's happening. You hear something, the mind knows. You taste something, the mind knows. So whatever comes in through the other sense media, the mind then knows about it. And we don't see how the knowing is just the function of another sense organ contracting around sense objects. Is that clear? Does that, does that jive with your, your experience? It does, but I'm thinking now as an example, how does, how do any one of the other sense organs contract around um, their object? Well, take the eyes, for example. I mean, you know, we're working with keeping the eyes almost open Mm -hmm. or almost closed. It's hard to say so that the gaze is centered on a particular point. And um, 
we notice how even built into the physiology and the memory of the eyes, it's difficult for the eyes to just get settled and stop wandering around, looking and needing and, and having to, to know. The eyes need to know also through their habit energies. And that's why we've been talking a lot about gazing rather than looking. So without, I mean, the mind comes in and says, this is a carpet, but that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about the actual sense organ wandering yeah, around looking sure. at Yeah, sure. Yeah, the memory, just like unconsciousness, is built into all the sense organs. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, in, in, in yoga terminology, this is called the samskaras, uh, which are like the deep psychophysical grooves in the mind-body process that are um, rooted so much in repetitive action. Yeah. But it's so hard to separate I consciousness from mind consciousness or any other consciousness because you know it could be either way your mm -hmm. mind is very busy so your eyes move mm -hmm. sure at the same time when we sit for example and even right now we can uh, notice sound and you can hear my voice and even if I stop talking and you just notice um, sound you can also notice how there's a real momentum in the mind it just wants to keep thinking thinking can you you can feel that right it's like a, just like a current in there but you can also see how the thinking is not necessarily um, about what you're hearing. The thinking is just going in its momentum. And you can see the separate actions of the sense organ. And then sometimes the 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 thinking happens in relationship to what's happening right now, but sometimes not. I mean, this is what so much of the neuroscientific uh, studies on chimpanzees has been focusing on, is how um, chimpanzees uh, only notice um, what is happening right now. They, they, they can't show how a chimpanzee can, for example, um, respond to thoughts that are not about what they're looking at or hearing right now. And I'm sure we could all poke holes in the experiment, but I think even experiments aside, we know this. You know, watch your cat. Michael. Yeah. A question on that, because... In my thinking, that's what being present means, uh -huh. right? It's when your mind and your sense organs are aligned. Uh -huh. So your mind is thinking about what you're seeing, thinking about what you're hearing, yeah. uh -huh. etc. But the thing that bothers me about that concept is that's how our animals are like. Mm -hmm. So is that what we're trying to achieve? It depends who's trying. Well someone has to try <laughs> to achieve that. I mean, you yeah. know, just as a, a mechanism for that attempt. Yeah. I mean, this is the, the famous first koan in Zen practice is um, someone asks the teacher, does a dog have Buddha nature? Mm. Or is it the other way around? The teacher asks the student, well, what do you think? And eventually the answer comes, Moo.
And, you know, mu is usually the first koan in Zen practice. Is you breathe mu. In other words, um, you become the dog, even though you can't be a dog. In other words, let's not try and have a thesis about whether the chimpanzee has the same consciousness as the human. The chimpanzee motivates us to find our true nature. But let's keep going here, because I I think there's something interesting here. Um, In each moment of knowing, there are different combinations of mental factors that influence the knowing. So it's not just that you hear a sound and then you know that it's a fire truck. It's that there are combinations of changing mental factors that influence how you're knowing. So, for example, mental factors might include greed, envy, jealousy, anger, hatred. So, when you're listening to somebody speaking, uh, it's not just that the mind is knowing what they're speaking about, but that there's this other stream of habit that perfumes the perception. So that it's not just perception of a thing, it's a certain colored perception. And and you hear what you're hearing colored by envy. You see? Does this make sense? Um... And there are two different kinds of factors, of mental factors, wholesome and unwholesome, kusala and akusala, which means that some mental factors like love and kindness um, or generosity um, seem to create more wholesome states of perception than other factors that influence the knowing, like greed and so on. We all know this, right? Just like if there's striving, then if I'm hearing a meditation instruction trying to get somewhere, then as I'm practicing, I'm not just noticing what's arising and passing away, but I'm noticing it with the energy of trying to make something happen. Just like when I asked you a few sessions ago to move from noticing what you're wanting to just notice the energy of wanting. Did that, did that make sense for you? And it's so interesting, and I'd be interested if any of you have tried this in your work with other people, is to help people sometimes notice um, that the problems in their craving have nothing to do with the object that they're craving or the notion of what they're trying to escape. But just the fact that there is a moment of knowing colored by craving, colored by wanting. You see? It's trying to get away from just looking at the frame. right? So we can say, on one hand we have, and we're going to talk about time, this morning, but so on the one hand you have the object that you're wanting. So what's an example of an object someone's wanting? A car. A car. A car. And so you could say the the wanting of the car is rooted in feeling like you know you don't have a good mode of transportation. And so sometimes as therapists, we focus a lot on the story behind the wanting. You know, how can you feel like you need a car? And, I mean, we could make up a whole thing. But in a way, what mindfulness is just trying to point out is, without the commentary of the why, um, can you just get to know what wanting feels like? 
Because whatever you're wanting, and for whatever reason in your past or present, you still have to learn how to work with wanting. Does this make sense? Isn't that so difficult, though? Don't you see how much you rely on the frame? related what comes first is it the frame that creates the wanting or is it the wanting that creates the frame well I think they feed into each other mm. yeah they reinforce each other and it could be either one or the other right in a certain situation sometimes you just want and you kind of create a frame yeah I mean in a way you can't have wanting without a frame because you have to want a thing most of us don't know the energy of wanting without the thing we're wanting. Mm. And what we're trying to do is focus on the wanting. You see? Um, so another way of understanding wholesome and unwholesome is that there are some factors that lead to happiness and there are some states of perception that don't. And this is the karma piece, right? Is to start to get to know, oh, these states of mind seem to work toward a sense of ease. And these ones do not. And to start to get to know that. And again, it's not focusing on the object. It's focusing on the mode of perception. Um, still working with frames. Still working with frames. I, th I think I need to say more about frames. Yeah. So, so what I was saying was that there are there are factors of mind. Okay. So a factor of mind could be greed, right? But in every single factor of mind, there's one common factor. And the common factor is perception, okay? And perception is always perception of something, right? Perception of something, which is always a kind of duality that's operating. We're clear so far? Because the per your perception is colored. And it's your perception. That's right. So there has to be an object. Your perception can just be colored by feeling that it's your perception. So um, here's my own definition of what perception is. Um, don't write this down because it's my own. Um, perception is the quality of mind that recognizes names and then remembers each arising object. So let me say that again. It's the quality of mind that recognizes names and then remembers that object in relationship to another object. So there's memory built into it. So perception picks out distinguishing marks and names them and then stores those marks in memory to later recognize what your experience. And that's the function of perception. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like um, having the experience with somebody you know where your ideas about them momentarily drop away and then you have a direct uh, intimacy 
without knowing. I have a little poem of this I wanted to, to read, actually. Um, it's by the poet Sharon Olds. It's called Once. I saw my father naked once. I opened the blue bathroom door, which he always locked. If it opened, it was empty. And there, surrounded by glistening turquoise tile, sitting on the toilet, was my father. All of him. And all of him was skin. In an instant, my gaze ran in a single, swerving, unimpeded swoop up. Toe, ankle, knee, hip, rib, nape, shoulder, elbow, wrist, knuckle, my father. He looked so unprotected, so seamless and shy, like a girl on a toilet. And even though I knew he was sitting to shit, there was no shame in that, but even a human peace. He looked up, I said sorry, backed out, shut the door, but I'd seen him, my father, a shorn lamb, my father a cloud in the blue sky of the blue bathroom. My eye had driven up the hairpin mountain road of the naked male. I had turned a corner and found his flank unguarded, gentle, bulge of the hip joint, border of the pelvic cradle. I love the moment in this poem where she says, a human peace. This way where she's looking at the parts of the body and how fresh it is, the turquoise of the bathroom, and then suddenly the mind comes and says, my father. And the way that just the word, my father, as Wittgenstein was saying earlier, creates a kind of shadow over the whole... (laughs) moment of perception right? where the mind comes in with a knowing that then frames the experience as happening to my father and then ha- or happening to me who has this person as my father and then the memory actually shuts down this kind of piece where it was just she says in one moment a girl sitting on the toilet Can anybody relate to this? Well, I was, I was going to say the chimpanzee would have had a totally different experience. Mm-hmm. How so? We just walked in and not had a probably not had a commentary, just just saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems that was happening for her. She was seeing the body parts. Mm-hmm going up, and then suddenly, my father. (laughs) So interesting. So again, this is what I want to focus on with perception, that that the way we're using this term perception has to do very much with a kind of surface knowing. But perception is the mind. Uh Uh-huh. It's a factor of the mind. surface knowing. And then, when we know, we turn what we're perceiving into a thing, which gives the impression that it has substantiality, which then turns experience back to a referential me. And what seems so radical about what the Buddha is saying is that that too is an illusion, that, that there is no me there to turn experience back to. But the more we turn experience back to me, the more we're actually creating a groove of perception that we don't see as a groove of perception. We just see it as a thing relating to another thing that actually exist in space and time. Just like we've talked about when you experience strong sensation in the body, the mind immediately says, 
that sensation is happening in a body. Okay, so you put a frame around it, and it's happening in my body, and if that sensation is something with which you're very familiar, then because of memory and association, you make that sensation real and permanent. And then it obscures the impermanent nature of that sensation arising in present experience. So this is the psychology of the eye-making mechanism. Mm-hmm. The problem I'm having, I mean, I think I get this, but the problem I'm having is that it, the alternative that you walk into the bathroom and you don't recognize that person sitting on the toilet as your father, mm-hmm. in which case, you know, I work with people that don't recognize people that are close to them. Mm-hmm. That I see the problem <laughs> because they've had brain injury, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's useful to recognize mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Zen monastery bell rings. Mm-hmm. Here it is, if for the first time. But if you don't recognize, recognize that the bell means something, mm-hmm. means whatever it means. Mm-hmm. We hear the bell. We, we hear. We recognize the meaning of the bell. Mm-hmm. That's. I mean, there's some functionality in other words. Yeah, but that's not how it works when we hear the bell. We hear the bell, yeah. and we think, oh man, I don't want to go to work. Period. Now, I'm just finally getting some rest, well, I don't want to get up, and then we, you know, plug our ears, and who's ringing the bell? It's so loud the way they're ringing it today. I liked it when that other person rings the bell, and maybe we should just get some automatic mechanism that rings bells, so don't hear the personality of the bell ringer. I know who's ringing the bell today. I bet you it's so-and-so, and they're always, you know, they drop their plates all the time, and they're not mindful. <laughs> so it's all the coloring. All the coloring. Yeah. yeah. But we're also saying something else, which is there are moments of experience where they're not even colored. The bell rings and it's just sound. And there's nobody there having the experience. But you still know what it means? Or there is a signal to... I don't know. You you have to investigate this. You have to investigate this in your practice to, to know what that means. And that's why I began talking about how the teachings of dukkha and the teachings of impermanence are very obvious. <laughs> but then Dogen says, you know, as I started to realize what emptiness means I had to stop reading (laughs) so I'm giving you the question back (laughs) to inquire to investigate to really investigate one of the things that seems to distinguish us as, as human beings is that we do we do ask questions Mm-hmm. Um, all of us here have asked umpteen questions this morning in terms of how we arrived at this place, mm-hmm. you know. And um, do I turn right or do I turn left to get the southbound train or you mm-hmm. know, something like that? And um, but those, it seems to me that the questions uh, can can continually go on a deeper level. Uh-huh. Like there's a uh, it seems that it, that's what characterizes us as mm-hmm. human beings. That we are we are asking questions with uh, maybe even unconsciously, um, but but looking for something that is more uh, that has a, a finitude, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a finality or a, some ultimate coming together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in the story of Dogen's experience, mm-hmm. there were uh, there were questions going back and forth, but the monk monk's questions were were causing Do- Dogen to to go to to ask deeper questions. Yeah, 
know. Yeah. And the deeper the question, the more basic the questions become. They become really, really simple. Kind of, we all know this about working with people, but when someone really touches kind of like the, the basic, basic heart of things, what they're struggling with suddenly becomes very, very simple. It might be huge, but it's still very, very simple. Like wanting, <laughs> for example. Like impermanence. Um, so I think what you're saying is really crucial in understanding the process of inquiry, which is to keep the questions alive and to not begin, as David Loy said, uh, to know that you can't know. And how that brings up questions. But most of the time we're so concerned with the answers that it's hard to maintain this mode of inquiry mm -hmm. that is contemplative. Mm -hmm. We investigate in a way where if we, we imagine that when we find the answer, the problem will go away. It's almost as if you're, you're flying in a plane towards the horizon. Mm -hmm. But you never get to the horizon. Uh -huh. It's yeah. always there, but it's yeah. you can never attain it. Yeah. Well, let, let me end, and then we're going to have a little break with what Dogen has to say about this. Uh, years later, after that experience, um, so we hear from Dogen when he's struggling still. And what Dogen was struggling with, by the way, is he heard, someone had said this earlier, but um, Dogen's big question was that if, you're, if you already are enlightened, then what do you practice? You know, that was his big question. And now, here, here's a passage from Dogen later on after uh, waking up. There are mountains hidden in treasures. There are mountains hidden in swamps. There are mountains hidden in the sky. There are mountains hidden in mountains. There are mountains hidden in hiddenness. This is complete understanding. An ancient Buddha said, Mountains are mountains, waters are waters. But these words don't mean mountains are mountains. They mean mountains are mountains. Therefore, investigate mountains thoroughly. And when you investigate mountains thoroughly, this is the work of mountains. <coughs> Such mountains and waters of themselves become wise persons and sages. You're in a plane looking at the horizon and you are looking at the horizon. And Dogen is saying, that's not a horizon. And the secret is hidden in the looking. That's horizon looking at horizon. That's horizon flying. I am separate from mountain. So I look upon the mountain as an object. And Dogen's saying, no, no. That's mountain looking at mountain. And that kind of non-duality is so challenging for the mind because it's not allowing you to separate yourself out. So this is Dogen's response. We could spend the whole weekend on this response. Mm -hmm. We will, actually. Mm -hmm.